That is a particularly tough intro to follow. I feel like I need kind of right of response to say lots of nice things about Brendan. Um, but it is fantastic to be here this morning with you all, church, and certainly congratulations. As Brendan said, you know, we've got uh, four kids, which is a wonderful gift. Uh, we love having all our kids, but sometimes it feels a little bit like dominoes when the first one comes home sick from school, you know, and they're kind of okay for a day or two. And then the next one gets sick. And you're like, oh, okay, this is starting to just run through everyone. I feel like for about the last three weeks, that's what we've had. But uh, praise God, we've got well kids this morning. And it's a privilege to be with you here. Um, so we've got the privilege this morning of uh, having the joy together as we meet as a church to hear from our Lord and Savior, Jesus. What a gift. Um, my hope this morning is that we would come to his word expectantly, uh, knowing that he alone can change our hearts. Um, So we're going to be continuing our series on Luke. So if you have your Bibles there, if you want to go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 18, um, we'll be looking at verses 18 to 30 together. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, in your kindness, you've gathered us together as your church to hear from your word. Lord, as you speak to us this morning, would we wait expectantly on you? You tell us in Hebrews that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Father, would you discern our hearts Change us and shape us to be more like your son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. In the 2016 English Premier League season, Leicester City Football Club, better known as the Foxes, um, overcame astonishing odds to win the English Premier League. Uh, They beat favourites Manchester City, Chelsea, Manchester United, Liverpool, probably some other teams that people are fans of that I'm forgetting. 
Um, and this ragtag team had a narrow, just narrowly avoided relegation the season prior, so they almost got sent back down a league um, for being so terrible and losing so many games. Um, but they didn't, and this turnaround was nothing short of miraculous. It's one of the great kind of sporting um, underdog stories of the recent um, sort of decade or so. Um, and their title win actually raised a number of their players to sort of cult hero status. They went from being, you know, pretty average workman-like players um, to becoming quite famous and well-known for being excellent players. Um, and one of these was Danny Drinkwater. Danny Drinkwater was a previously sort of unremarkable midfielder playing at Leicester City, but during this title-winning season, he gained real notoriety. He became quite famous, well-known as an excellent midfielder. Um, and with that came the promise of greater reward. So Chelsea, Chelsea Football Club, who was sort of one of the richest teams in the league, very well known, really successful, um, they came to Danny Drinkwater with an offer. They said, come on, come and join us. We will. We have this fantastic team, we're really ambitious, we've got great players, a great manager, um, and most importantly, we're going to go ahead and triple your salary from a measly £2 million a season to £6 million a season. Uh, and it, might, it may not surprise you to hear that Drinkwater accepted the offer and he headed south to London for the following season. But over the next five years, Drinkwater played only 12 games for Chelsea and he actually gained a reputation as a well-paid bench warmer. Um, and just one year into his Chelsea contract, Leicester saw this opportunity. You know, he's just sitting there warming the bench. We'll invite him back. You know, we'll bring him back to the scene of his greatest triumph, of his glory with Leicester City, a city that would just welcome him back as a hero. Um, but there was just one little catch. You see, Leicester is a lot smaller of a team than Chelsea, so they couldn't offer him the salary that Chelsea could. You know, so they said, come on home, you know, come back to this city where you've had this fantastic glory, where the fans will welcome you. You know, they probably throw you a parade. They love you so much. But he couldn't do it. He couldn't turn down his contract with Chelsea with its millions of extra pounds, and so he stayed and played on. Now, you may rightly wonder... What does this story of an overpaid footballer have to do with me half a world away in Sydney? The truth is that here in Australia, we live in a culture where wealth surrounds us and where wealth is celebrated. We have a temptation to see money and wealth as morally neutral, where the clear teaching of the Bible is that it is in fact dangerous to us. In 1 Timothy 6, uh, we're reminded For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Jesus himself, uh, during the Sermon on the Mount, in uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, reminds us, you cannot serve both God and money. And earlier in this series, from Luke chapter 12, during the parable of the rich fool, we heard this. Jesus said, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So how then can we live as Christians in a world and in a culture that celebrates wealth? And if there's just one thing that I'd love you to take away from this morning, it would be this. We do it by remembering that Jesus offers a reward that's greater than wealth. So from our text this morning, I will take a look at three things that I think our culture simply does not believe, and by extension, actually, we can be tempted as Christians to disbelieve. 
And these things are, number one, the distraction of wealth, from verses 18 to 23. Uh, Number two, which is the danger of wealth, from verses 24 to 27. And number three, we'll look at a different kind of wealth, from verses 28 to 30. And for those that love a sermon title, I've entitled this one, Wealth and Eternal Life. So point number one, the distraction of wealth. As we meet this rich young ruler this morning, I think we can be tempted to put him into a category alongside the Pharisees. Uh, If you've heard the story of the rich young ruler before, uh, likely you know that it doesn't end well for him. And therefore, we're tempted to put him in that category of sort of self-righteous, people who are coming before God trying to justify themselves. And even earlier in Luke chapter 10, we'd seen the Pharisees even ask a similar question to what this rich young ruler had asked. Um, So we're tempted to sort of put him in that category of people who look to justify themselves before a holy God. Um, But as we read this morning, I want us to take a closer look uh, to examine this young man as he comes to Jesus. Please read with me. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. So here we have a young man who's asked the right question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And he's asked it to the right person in Jesus. That's a great person to ask this question to. Um, And he even had the right answer to Jesus' question of him. All these I have kept since my youth. And he had the right answer because he'd spent his life since his youth doing the right things. He'd lived a moral and upright life. So he had the right question, asked the right person, answered Jesus' question the right way, and he'd done the right things in his life. So what then did he get wrong? We know the story doesn't end well. Um, And the answer that we get from verse 23 is, when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. In the parallel account of this story in Matthew's Gospel, uh, we're told that he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So what is it then that he got wrong? It was his response to Jesus' call on his life. Rather than turn and follow Jesus, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. His possessions, his wealth, had distracted him from the call to follow Jesus as Lord. And it can seem obvious to us from our perspective that he'd made the wrong choice in not following Jesus' command. Uh, Maybe if we're honest, we even just breathe a little sigh of relief because that's probably how we would have responded to, to that call. And we should take note of Jesus' words in response to this young ruler because Jesus sees his heart and he wants to show him his idolatry. You'll notice that he doesn't list all of the Ten Commandments. 
Um, he instead focuses on what we might refer to as the horizontal commandments. So those commands that really are about how we interact with one another as people. Um, what's left off of the list, because Jesus wants to expose this man to his idolatry, are the vertical commands. The way that we are to respond to God. The way that we are to interact with God. And very importantly, that list includes, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Which is exactly what this young man has done. He's made an idol of his possessions. He's made an idol of his wealth. So much so, in fact, uh, that that's caused him to reject the offer to follow Jesus. Now, a month or two ago, I was having a discussion with someone who is not a believer, uh, and they pointed out to me that the Ten Commandments are a really great way for a society to be ordered. I mean, they do good things. They help people to interact with one another well and to love one another well. Um, But then the question came, you know, what about those first commands that aren't necessarily about how we interact with one another? You know, they're about how we interact with God. And the response came, oh, we don't need to worry about those ones. You know, you can kind of leave those off the list. Um, But it did give me pause because it's a good point. Those The commandments do help us live well with one another. The horizontal commands help us to love one another and interact well with one another. And so then it made me think, what do we lose if we lose the vertical commands? Those ones, uh, you shall have no other God before me, do not make for yourself an idol, even even the command around having a Sabbath and keeping the Sabbath holy. What do we lose without them? And the truth is that this would cause us to put ourselves in the place of God. We would begin to make idols for ourselves. We would be self-righteous. You know, we would look at our own performance if we could somehow keep these horizontal commands and we would say to ourselves, how well have I done? You know, I've managed to keep these commands. A bit like our rich young ruler that we met this morning. Um, And even if we could live the moral lives that this young ruler has done since his youth, it's still not enough. As John Calvin once said, the human heart is an idol factory. If our affections are not turned toward the one true and living God, we will begin to worship all sorts of other things. Our heart will run distracted to that which amuses, entertains, or brings happiness to us, no matter how fleeting. And what of our young ruler? His heart ran to his wealth, his possessions, that which brought him fleeting happiness. And you might also be wondering... This call that Jesus places on the young ruler's life to sell all that he has and give to the poor, you might be wondering, does that apply to me? Well, you can breathe a sigh of relief because the author gives no indication that this applies to all followers of Jesus. Even the disciples themselves who gave up much to follow Jesus likely still had a home, likely still had a boat so they could do their fishing, and likely had some means of material support. But before we breathe too deeply on that sigh of relief, what this passage clearly teaches us is that Jesus does sometimes place this call to sell all that you have and give to the poor on people's lives. This means he may call you or me to do it. And David Platt in his wonderful book Radical put it like this, That Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. So what then for us? 
do we believe Jesus when he tells us that wealth is a distraction? That it has the power to pull our eyes from him and instead turn them back on ourselves and our desires? Church, would that not be the case for us? Would we heed this warning from Jesus about the distraction that wealth brings? And what if we don't heed Jesus' warning about the distraction that wealth brings? That brings us to point number two, the danger of wealth. You know, I wonder if we truly believe Jesus when he tells us about the danger of wealth. As Christians in a, wealth, in a Western culture, we're tempted to think very practically about money. You know, it's a tool. It's a thing that we use to bring about a certain purpose. Um, and with that, we begin to move wealth away from something that is dangerous to us and towards being something that is just morally neutral. It's neither good nor bad. It just is. And if we dig a little deeper as well, I think we'll find that we often consider wealth as an indicator of a life well lived. You know, we might see someone with wealth and to us we think, likely they've worked hard to get there. You know, they've done the hard yards, they've earned the right to be where they are. And that will bring about, you know, we think maybe we should, they deserve a little of our respect. The other challenge that we face in recognizing the danger of wealth is that we look to the wrong place to measure it. Even now, as I've been talking about wealth, you've probably been thinking about a person or a group of people who is more material wealthy, materially wealthy than you are. But the truth is that here in Sydney, Australia, in the 21st century, we are far more wealthy than the vast majority of people through time could ever imagine. I suspect even our rich young ruler, if he saw us, would blush a little at the material abundance that we have And it's a few years ago now, but when I got my first job flipping burgers at Macca's, um, I was paid $5.95 an hour. So doing the math on that, you can see that when I went from high school and went to do my 4 till 7 p.m. shift at McDonald's, um, I could work those three hours and earn less than 20 bucks. Um, And my parents, very kindly, who are here this morning, I think drove me to and from those shifts, probably spending more on petrol than I was earning working at McDonald's. Um, But while I was there, a friend pointed me to a website that measured where we ranked in the world based on our income. And of course, for a laugh, you know, doing these sub $20 an hour shifts at Macca's, I thought to myself, oh, I'll have to have a look and see where this would put me, uh, where this would rank me in the world in terms of my income. And uh, putting in that amount, I was shocked to see that it actually placed me in the top 10% of worldwide income, just working a handful of shifts at Macca's. A couple of years later, when I got my first full-time job, I took that number, the salary that I was getting there, and put it into that same website. And with that salary, it put me into the top 2% of global wealth worldwide. Friends, by any measure, we are wealthy. So how then does Jesus, in this passage, address the wealthy? Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. 
So it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Um, Jesus here uses the example of what was likely the largest known land mammal in uh, first century Palestine to his listeners in conjunction with the smallest imaginable opening. So when you picture it, it's literally absurd. You cannot push a camel through the eye of a needle. Uh, And in preparation for this sermon, I read a couple of places that previously people have believed that the eye of the needle may have been the name of a gate in the wall of Jerusalem that would have been very hard, you know, for to get a camel to kind of crouch right down and and go through this tiny hole in the gate. But but all of the commentaries that I read on this um, said that that was incredibly unlikely to be the case. Interesting then that even uh, in this with Jesus' command, we sort of look for a way to move that statement away from being what is impossible to something that's just very hard or a bit tricky, you know, to get the camel to go down and make its way through this small opening um, in the gate. But after this comes the best news of this passage. After the crowd who are with him, uh, they're with Jesus, ask him, then who can be saved? He responds, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And our rich young ruler didn't only get his response wrong to Jesus, he actually asked the question incorrectly. In our first passage there, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the correct answer there is nothing. There is nothing he must do, nor anything he can do to inherit eternal life. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 tells us this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And in the passage immediately following what we've read this morning, Jesus tells his disciples that he will go to Jerusalem and be killed. And through this, he has opened the way for us to eternal life. The danger of wealth, then, is that it makes it impossible for us to inherit the kingdom of God. And the danger of wealth is real, but the antidote is clear. What is impossible with man is possible with God. We need to look away from ourselves. We must no longer trust in ourselves for our own salvation, for we are not able to accomplish it. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. And friends, what great news that is. Kent Hughes put it this way in his commentary on Luke. He frames this for us. Whoever we are, regardless of our boastings and our attachments, he can do the impossible in our hearts. For the rich or poor, The materialist or idealist, there is but one hope. Each must let go of possessions or passion or position or person and come to Christ. The rewards of doing so are stupendous. And if I can encourage you in one specific application of this passage on the danger of wealth, it would be to recognize that wealth has a way of separating those, separating us from those around us. When we have material wealth, we feel less need for the support of those around us. 
Um, And I want to encourage us instead to rely on those around you, particularly those in this church. Um, So it might be, you know, you've got a move coming up, you're moving house. So um, the the kind of temptation for us is to use our wealth to make that as simple as possible. I'll go hire some removalists. Maybe I'll even pay them a bit extra so they pack the boxes because we all know that's the worst part of moving. Um, It might be that you've just had a baby and you think, oh, I don't want to cook meals for a couple of weeks, so I'm just going to order Uber Eats for a couple of weeks. But friends, what a way to let your church love you, um, to set up a meal roster, have people bringing you food, or maybe even they'll just give you a voucher for Uber Eats. (laughs) But friends, these are ways that we can serve one another and love one another and be Jesus' hands and feet to one another. So think about those opportunities before you. And what that will help us to do, in so doing, we'll begin to see point number three, which is a different kind of wealth. Read with me from verse 28. And Peter said, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many times more in this time and the age to come, eternal life. It's hard not to have a soft spot for the Apostle Peter. He seems to have this amazing ability to uh, say out loud things that most other people would keep to themselves. Um, And we benefit from that this morning because Peter has blurted out the first thing that's come to his mind, um, saying, we've we've left our houses to follow you, Jesus. And Jesus' response to this church is truly a marvel. And I'm very aware uh, that in the past I've been guilty of misreading this passage. Um, Particularly as a young Christian, I misunderstood Jesus' response. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. The mistake that I made was in categorizing all these as rewards that we will receive when Jesus returns. But that's not what it says. In this time, for those who have left behind precious relationships, family, friends, treasured possessions, they shall receive many times more in this time. This is quite an unusual promise that we have here from Jesus. Because we're both the recipients of this promise... Actually, we're also the fulfillment of it to one another. And thankfully for many of us here, following Jesus didn't come at the cost of relationships or possessions. And praise God for that. There are, however, brothers and sisters in our church and many more beyond our walls for whom that is not the case. In many cultures, following Jesus can cost you absolutely everything. And our Lord, in his kindness, has established his church to be brothers and sisters, parents and children, and welcoming homes to those who have left behind much for the kingdom. The language that Jesus uses here in talking about the provision of many times more in this age uh, was an echo of language that we saw in the story of Job from the Old Testament, uh, and particularly what was used, uh, the language that was used in the restoration we see in the final chapter of that book. 
If you're unfamiliar with the story of Job, it's a book that's named for its title character from the Old Testament. Uh, And he was a man of great wealth uh, with a wonderful family. He had many sons and daughters. Uh, But tragedy strikes him, and through a series of events, the Lord takes away his wealth, his health, and his family. And many commentators suggest that Job's story teaches us as Christians how to suffer well. And we see this unfold as he discusses this with his friends, um, all the potential reasons why God may have taken away um, what he had from him. And if you're familiar with the book as well, you know the friends don't give great advice. There are sort of three friends who give pretty terrible advice, and then a fourth one comes and gives some reasonable advice that Job is able to take on board. But the climax of this story comes in Job chapter 42, uh, verses 10 and 11, which says this, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And this beautiful picture of restoration is echoed here in Luke chapter 18. And to the original hearers um, of Jesus speaking this, they would have seen that. They would have seen the kind of restoration that Job had and they would have been reminded of that in what he'd spoken to them here. And for us this morning, I believe that we have a timely reminder to love those in our midst who have left much for the kingdom and to welcome those for whom following Jesus may come at great personal cost. Um, Brendan mentioned in the introduction, next week we have our International Sunday. You know, we've had people out flyering, the guys had the barbecue yesterday, um, all these wonderful things happening to hopefully and under God uh, and prayerfully we would love to see next Sunday this church with, filled with people who are new to Jesus, people who may not yet know him. Uh, and in all likelihood, there would be those amongst them uh, for whom a choice to follow Jesus would be a choice against their family, against their friends, against their culture, and maybe against their religion. Are we prepared as a church to welcome them not only with open arms, but to be their brothers and sisters, their parents and children, spouses and friends, and to not only open the doors of our church, but to also open the doors of our homes for the sake of the kingdom. And what a gift Jesus adds to all of this, the gift of eternal life. Not only does he provide a new kind of wealth for us now, but in the age to come, eternal life. And what a wonderful reminder that is, that Jesus, in his loving kindness, offers a different kind of wealth. So in finishing up our time together this morning, I want to revisit the question that I posed at the, at the beginning. How can we live as Christians in a culture that celebrates wealth? Well, we need to be aware of the distraction that wealth presents. Our, our rich young ruler went away sad for he had great possessions. Friends, would we be on guard that that would not be the case for us? We live in a world of such material abundance. There are so many distractions for us. Would we be on guard um, under God by his spirit to be aware of the distraction that wealth brings? We need to be aware of the danger that wealth poses. Wealth is not morally neutral. 
It's the very clear teaching of Jesus that wealth presents a danger to us and to our souls. Would we be aware of that danger? And we need to see that Jesus offers a different kind of wealth, both now and in the age to come, with the promise he has given us this morning. And above all, would we walk out the doors this morning remembering that Jesus offers a reward that's greater than wealth? Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the reminder this morning that what is impossible with man is possible with God. Thank you that in your goodness you went to the cross to win for us eternal life. And Father, help us now as we live in a culture where wealth is the air that we breathe to live for you and to live lives that are marked by your goodness and your kindness. Would we be family to one another And would we welcome those whom you bring to us who have given up much for you and your kingdom. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, church, indeed, we are wealthy, aren't we? We are not primarily because we live in...